Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, tis I. Brendan Mortensen, tis he. The podcast is we, Brendan. Yeah. Got and it. I think the it is has gotten higher and higher in pitch every time you've done it. It is. What is and it I'm up impressed. to? What is it up to now? Is that like a B flat? You have it perfect pitch. It certainly could be. So, yeah. It could. You tell me. I don't know. You, you, I wasn't listening closely enough. Okay. I mostly just kind of block you out and yeah, go from there. Yeah, that's 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 obvious. Uh, how about Matt Harvey yesterday, Brendan? Yeah, how about it? Gets his Six, first win in forever? Since, since May 1st. Since May 1st. That's a long time. It's 12 starts, uh, to yeah. be exact. Uh, that's, that's quite a long time. Good for him against his former team. Fared better against this former team than against the Mets yes. earlier on in the season. So good for him to, uh, it was the Matt Harvey revenge game. Yeah, and mostly just encouraging that Brandon Hyde is able to go to somebody in his starting rotation that goes more than three innings, so he doesn't have to use his bullpen the yeah. entire time. Yeah, I mean, the depth at that point is like trumps the number of earned runs you give up. Yeah. It's just how deep can you go into games. Right. Uh, good for him. Also, Ramon Arias making us look good. Our uh, Ramon Arias hype. One of our few good takes, some Very say. few, yeah. Yeah. Now you can bring back the Matt Harvey podcast from earlier, though. Please don't. Season. Yeah. Please do not. Uh, my question, so Brendan and I are joining a softball league in the great city of Baltimore. Uh, tonight's our first game, different teams, yeah. but who will have more hits tonight? Me, Brendan, or Ramon Arias? Ooh, that's a good question. How many innings? I mean, are these my money is probably on the professional baseball player to have more hits than we do. But yeah. then again, we're also not. But also level MLB of pitching. competition. Yeah, right. we're not dropping us into a. You drop Ramon Arias into the softball game. <laughs> I think he'll have more hits. He'd probably the do question pretty is, well. Does he have? Yeah. How how are you are you confident in your ability to to drive the ball? Relatively. Tonight? Okay. I'm yeah. curious to see how fast they're going to throw. I mean, I have not. Neither of us have have done a softball league before. Yeah, I mean, I played baseball in high school, but so I I'm I'm hoping that translates. We'll see. Uh, what position do you think you're best suited for? So when I was playing baseball in in high school and growing up, I usually played either second base or center field. Okay. Don't know how that translates to this softball league in any way. Those are two speedy positions. You're yeah. a little Jermai Jones, a little bit. You, yeah. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. I don't know. I. I would guess they'll just stick me in the outfield, but my ball tracking skills <laughs> they are stick probably ball terrible. in right field, and they're just like, don't, don't mess anything yeah, up. No, just exactly. stay over there. They're just going to hide me somewhere on the field. Like, yeah. they'd rather go with two outfielders and just have me in the corner. I think that's the plan. By the field, by yeah. the, the fence. Yeah. Um, we'll see how it goes. I, my ball tracking skills are very poor. That's the one thing that I feel like major leaguers do with incredible ease that I've just... I mean, I've played very limited actual baseball in my life, but just the ability to track the ball off the bat immediately. You know, they say your first yeah. step is always back. So I know that. But after that, it's, it's just a gamble for me. I mean, I could be running in, ball's two feet over my head. You never know. Oof. Yeah. That's, that's all I have to say to that. All right. Well, we've uh, got a lot to talk about, Brendan. We're yeah. going to talk uh, a little bit about 
in uh, later on the prospect movement that we've seen throughout the Orioles minor league system. And now that we've reached the point where we have about two and a half months less than that left in the season, what kind of prospects maybe that we'll see debut or come back up uh, to the major league team. But first, Brendan, we have not had a podcast since the end of the draft. The last time we hopped on, the Orioles had just selected Colton Kowser, number five overall. They were entering day two of the three-day, 20-round draft. So we got to talk about the draft as a whole because there were uh, some interesting strategies employed in this Orioles draft. And I think that it didn't go as we expected from the Orioles' perspective, but we learned a lot about the way that Mike Elias values players and a lot lot about his strategy going into the draft. Yeah, the prevailing strategy seemed to be draft college bats with solid contact numbers and good speed. Yeah, that was that was pretty much the plan. They did that with their first five picks in the draft. Yeah, and it was uh, some overall trends. That was it. Uh, College hitters over high schoolers. We thought that they might go with high schoolers later in the draft because they went under slot with Colton Kowser and with Connor Norby. Uh, We thought that they might draft pitchers earlier than they did. They drafted almost all hitters on the first two days, and they drafted almost all pitchers on the third day. Uh, So there were a lot of uh, different strategies that we saw in in play. Before we get into that, first off, I have to say I have done research into what a Bearcat is, as in Sam Houston State Bearcats, which is the program that Colton Kowser comes from, because there is a K in the middle of Bearcat there. And a friend of the pod, my mom, actually sent me an article from 2004. I couldn't even find an article from 2004 if you, if I tried. I don't know how you would even begin to do that. That talks about how the Bearcat is a mythical creature. It is not a real creature. More myth than creature, and that is why it has a K in the middle. A mythical Bearcat? Yes. I feel like a, a Bearcat doesn't sound It's mythical not a real thing. Well, but have you ever seen a Bearcat? It's not a real I, thing. I can't there, say there's I have. like a mountain lion, there, you know. Yeah, but it, it sounds like it should fall under one of those categories. It of like should. Like mountain lion and cougars. But like then you try like to that. imagine it, and that that's a, not a crossover that makes much sense in my head. It's talking that's like fair. spider monkeys, you know. Yeah, that doesn't doesn't really make sense. Anyway, all right. Um, so we talked about Colton Kowser. We've yeah. pretty much uh, covered that. Colton Kowser has since signed with the Orioles for an underslot deal, about one point two million dollars underslot. They save money there, and then they go back and they have an underslot deal with Connor Norby, who's the East Carolina uh, second baseman. Similar kind of mold in that he is a a contact hitter, has developing power, pretty solid, you know, other tools and defensive tools, but he is mostly known for his ability to put the bat on the ball. Yeah, he seems like a, a kind of similar prospect to Jordan Westberg in that sense, where he's just an established college bat. A little bit different because Jordan Westberg played in the SEC. Connor Norby is in the AAC, so obviously the level of competition there is not the same. But two guys who are just solid outfielders with good bats that Mike Elias and company think is going to project well into the minor leagues. A little bit of a surprising pick, Paul. I think both of us were looking at the draft board at that point and there were a lot of high schoolers that were on the board that seemed like they could maybe be similar picks to somebody like Gunnar Henderson. And we were both thinking because they go under slot with Colton Kowser, maybe they overpay for one of these high schoolers and they opt for the college bat instead. Yeah, Gunnar Henderson was a high school prospect, a prep 
uh, player who they signed over slot, $2.3 million when the slot value for that pick, it was at the very beginning of the second round back in 2019, I think was like 1.9. So they went over slot to get a Gunder Henderson because they liked the talent there. We thought that they might even do something like that last year in the five-round draft. When they drafted Heston Kerstad in the first round, we thought, all right, they're going to go with a prep pitcher here. We thought there was a guy, what, Jared Kelly, was that his name? The high school pitcher who was falling down draft boards because nobody wanted to pay him. Maybe the Orioles would go over slot, and they did the same thing last year. They went Jordan Westberg, like you said. So they went with a college bat who was known to put bat on ball, who had great contact skills, developing power, but was not going to go over slot. So they keep pushing the over slot bonus later and later uh, into the draft. And I think that there are some reasons to do that. But I think from our perspective, we were expecting them to utilize that money way earlier. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's probably just a case of when Gunnar Henderson was there in the early second round back in 2019, he's probably a prospect that the Orioles had ranked really highly. Most of these high school guys that were falling to the top of the second round where the Orioles were picking, they were like mid to late 20s draft prospects, according to MLB Pipeline. So it's not like these were some of the top high school prospects in the entire draft. And it probably comes down to, okay, if you value somebody like Connor Norby, pretty similarly to one of those high schoolers, you will go with the safer pick that you probably also have to pay less money in Norby at the top of the second round instead of one of those high schoolers that you would be really gambling on at that point. Right, and then after they they select Connor Norby, they follow it up with... Uh, three outfielders. They take Reed Trimble from Southern Miss. They take John Rhodes from Kentucky, and they take Donta Williams from Arizona. Three guys that actually, a couple of those guys are draft-eligible sophomores. So, though they are college bats and they are outfielders, they might actually require an overslot deal in order to sign those guys. So, because they're draft-eligible sophomores, they have an extra year to kind of play with that they can go back to school and use that as leverage uh, in negotiation. So, while it's not, you know, per se, this guy's a high schooler, you have to sign him for over slot, they can probably use that as as the extra year of eligibility, dangle that over uh, the front office's head and say, we want just a little bit more money here. And it's interesting that the Orioles there go with an outfielder in four of their first five picks. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that in the draft, you don't need to pay attention to positions all that much unless you're looking at the top of the first round and there is a college bat that is going to make the majors within a year or two. Then maybe you look at the position a little bit more and you look at your farm system and see what positions you need. The Orioles have a very deep farm system as a whole. And I think at this point, they were in a good position of just being able to draft the best players available in whatever round they were in. So yes, the four of the first five picks in this draft were outfielders, but they were probably just the four best players that they thought were available at the time. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of fans talk about, well, they're drafting too many outfielders because they went with more outfielders than infielders. But I totally agree, Brendan. That's something Brad Selick, who heads up the draft, mentioned after the draft is versatility is key here. So don't necessarily pay attention to what they're labeled as. Um, And these are a lot of guys who probably played other positions in college because they are athletic enough to move them around. And this is something that the organization clearly likes with their prospects. They're trying out Adley Rutschman at first base. J.C. Encarnacion became became an outfielder this year. Taryn Vavra became an outfielder this year. Rylan Bannon has been tried out at catcher. They've, They've moved guys around because this is clearly something that 
they value is versatility defensively for some of these guys. Yeah, Adam Hall, another one who's yes. shifted from second base to the outfield. And with these outfielders, too, you've got to remember that there's three outfield positions. It's not like you're drafting four of your first five picks as catchers and just assuming that they're going to yes. stay in catcher. These guys can either bounce from center to left to right. There's a lot of options there throughout the minor leagues for all these guys. Yeah. So the biggest concern, I think, from Orioles fans came with the fact that they did not draft pitching early. The first pitcher that they drafted came in the fifth round, and that was righty Carlos Tavera. Uh, So they only had one pitcher in the first two days of the draft. And then the third day, it was like they opened their Twitter mentions and just said, well, we got to take some pitchers. And they went almost all pitchers on the third day of the draft. Eight of their final 10 picks on the third day were pitchers. And every single pitcher that they drafted were righties. So I think that there are a few reasons why the Orioles employed this draft strategy. It's interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen a team do this. We saw some funky stuff in the draft period. We saw the Angels take 20 pitchers go 20 for 20. Yeah, how does that happen? Yeah. As, as, where are you going to put all of those? I don't, I don't know where you can fit them, where you can literally roster enough of these guys. Uh, Cespedes, no idea. family barbecue, friend of the pod, said that they threw a no-hitter because they took all pitchers in their draft. Pretty impressive, yeah. honestly. Um, so I think that, you know, there were some funky stuff happening in this draft, and I think that uh, the Orioles going all hitters on the first two days pretty much, and then pretty much all pitchers on the third two days smacks of a few things. One, I think it, it, it smacks of using the models. Draft models have been increasingly popular around MLB. Front offices have been using them more and more. Um, and I think that whatever draft models the Orioles have been using and Michael Elias has been leaning on clearly favors uh, college bats and clearly uh, mini- favors the minimized risk that you get when you draft a position player early over drafting a pitcher. And the other important thing to keep in mind, along with those draft models that the Orioles are using, I don't want to go on the entire tangent again, because we talked about it when we were talking about Colton Kowser at number five over some of the pitchers that were on the board. Yes, the Orioles major league team is not pitching well. And yes, they need pitching help at the major league level. But the minor league system is absolutely stacked with some top pitchers. They've got the top pitching prospect in all of baseball, according to Baseball America, in Grayson Rodriguez. They've got D.L. Hall. They've got Kyle Bradish and other guys that they have acquired via trade, like Kevin Smith. And then they've still got guys like Zach Lowther, Mike Bauman, Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer. The Orioles pitching in the minor leagues was really not the thing that needed help. They needed more quality bats in the minor leagues, and they found that in the first bunch of rounds. But like you said, Paul, I think a lot of the draft models favor those college bats pretty heavily because you're mitigating the risk at that point. If you're taking high school arms or high school bats, there's a lot of projection going on there, and it's really hard to figure out what an 18-year-old is going to do in the majors when he's 23 years old. But when you're looking at somebody who's 21, 22, and has been mashing in college baseball, facing higher-level competition than they would in high school, you're able to project that a lot better to the major leagues than you would one of those high school guys. And you, you mentioned a lot of the pitchers that are already in their system, and a lot of those guys were brought in by the previous regime. When you talk about D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, all these guys were added to the organization from Dan Duquette. However, 
It's not like Mike Elias disregards pitching entirely. He did trade for a bunch of pitching prospects. He traded for Garrett Stallings, uh, Isaac Matson, Kevin Smith, Kyle Burnovich. So, and then he took, he's taken almost all, with the exception of Richie Martin and Drew Jackson in the first year, he's taken four pitchers in the Rule 5 draft over the past two years. So it's not like he disregards young pitching. He just goes other avenues to find it. Uh, and when you talk about, you know, production over projection when it comes to these high school performers and the college performers, and also when it comes to pitching in particular, there's obviously risk with every single prospect that their skills are not going to translate. That's the same when it comes to pitching as it is when it comes to hitting. However, there's a higher risk when you draft a pitcher that injury will seriously derail his career at an early level. And there is obviously injury risk when it comes to uh, position players that in, an injury could derail the, his career. However, an injury to the arm is not going to be as devastating potentially as it would for a pitcher. So when you're drafting a pitcher, not only do you have the risk of this guy's skills aren't going to translate, but you have increased injury risk. So you're taking on two different risk factors. There are two variables here. Whereas if you go earlier for a position player, you are mostly just expecting that you're taking on the risk of his production not translating. There's still injury risk, but it is minimal compared to the pitching. And I think that's why they, they went with the position players early. It's not like they went, well, one of our pitchers could get hurt, so let's take all position players. They say, no, we're going to, we know that we have to hit uh, it is more important to hit on our picks in the first 10 rounds than it is the light, latter 10 rounds. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the surer things, the safer bets in the first 10 rounds, and then we'll take the big swings in the last 10 rounds. And that's the important thing to keep in mind when you mention the later rounds and those bigger swings. I think there is probably a better percent chance that you hit on a late round pitcher than if you hit on a late round position player. Yeah, Those position players... Yes, they can show skills in the later rounds, but if you're somebody that has a really good contact bat or really good speed or really good raw power, you're probably going in the first five rounds. Yes, exactly. There are not a ton of like raw toolsy guys that are going in the 15th, 16th rounds. Exactly. However, maybe you can look at a pitcher if he's, say he goes to a junior college, you draft him in the 17th round and he has a high spin rate slider. Maybe the Orioles are looking at somebody saying, okay, you have a high spin rate on this pitch. We can work with that. You can go to the minor leagues. You can work with the pitching coaches. You can figure out how to get your spin rates up, how to take those pitches that look really projectable in the later rounds and translate them with good coaching into effective pitching in the minor leagues. And I think there's a better percent chance that you can hit on those pitchers in the later rounds than on the hitters in the later rounds. I think that's well said because I think it's easier to hide a good pitcher in the later rounds because yes. so much goes into pitching. It's it's not just the stuff. It's not just the spin rate. It's also decision-making. It's catching who's catching you. It's the strike zone in certain areas. Hitting, it's harder to... If a guy is a good hitter, odds are he's going to hit in college. Right. Odds are wherever he's going to be, he's going to put up some numbers. For pitching, you can have a guy who has really bad numbers in college that just has not had the right coaching, the right catcher, bad umpiring in a certain league, that has not has just doesn't know how to throw their certain pitches at a certain time, doesn't have uh, any good decision-making on the mound. 
that's way different. You know, if a hitter's up there, odds are in college, guys will make mistakes and he'll be able to hit the ball. It's not like you're going to find in the, you know, it's rare that you're going to find in the 15th or 20th round a hitter who has is hitting like 230, but his bat is going to project. Right. But you can probably find a guy, a pitcher whose ERA was, was 450, but his arm is going to project because he just hasn't been doing the right things at the right time. Yeah, there's coachable things. Yes. You can coach a pitcher on his spin rates. You can work with a pitcher and figure out how he's able to use metrics and analytics to his advantage to make his pitches more effective. You can't really go up to a hitter and work on their power all that much. Right. You either have power with your bat or you don't. Right. A well, pitcher power, you can project Power, I think more. you can project a little bit more. But oh, con- absolutely. Yeah, but because a, a lot of those guys, you know, if they're high schoolers, they're 18. If right. they're college, they're 21. But contact especially. Like, yes. that is just hand-eye coordination, put the bat on the ball. Like, right. it, you know, you can develop better contact, but a lot of it comes down to just you have it or you don't. Right. Like you said. Exactly. Um, so, and it, again, it's not like they totally disregard pitching. And here's the other thing. Michael Elias has gotten burned by drafting pitchers early. Let's be honest. He, back with the Houston Astros, two number one overall picks. He was part of that front office, and it's not like he was the GM. So he wasn't the ultimate decision maker, but he was, you know, number two or number three captaining that ship. Mark Appel, Brady Aiken. Two guys who were drafted number one overall who did not pan out for different reasons. Appel because of production uh, and Brady Aiken because of injury. So he's gotten burned by that in the past. And I think that it's not maybe uh, uh, him being afraid to go back to pitching, but I think that you could say he's learned from that experience and had two guys who were projectable, good young pitchers not work out. The first was Appel was just projected way higher than he was going to be. And the second, Brady Aiken, they failed to sign because they did a medical exam and discovered that his UCL joint was smaller and was going to require Tommy John at some point early. And if they took another pitcher with a, a you know a high round pick, there is always that potential that they could require Tommy John early or some kind of other devastating surgery or injury. Um, so Mike Elias has gotten burned going that way. And I think he just wants to go with the safer options when it comes to taking a position player early, when you have a, a, a very high first round pick. And I'm glad that you mentioned the Astros there, because there's another point that I want to bring up with the Astros, with drafting hitters early. If you look at the Astros roster construction for the years that they were winning world series titles, they were built on the backbone of their two top picks, Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman. And then you've also got yep. guys like Jose Altuve and George Springer. When you look at the pitching rotation, yes, they kind of got lucky with developing Dallas Keuchel, who nobody really thought was going to be anything special, but they went out and got Garrett Cole. Yes. They went out and got Justin Verlander. So they were built on their core of draft picks and Zach Greinke as well. So they were built on that core of draft picks that they drafted Early on, Carlos Correa was the first overall pick. Alex Bregman was the third overall pick Springer, in those drafts. Springer was 11. Springer was the 11th overall pick. So that's how they built the team with those hitters that they drafted early on. And then they go out and they acquire their three top pitchers in Verlander, Cole, and Grinke. You draft the hitters, you acquire the pitchers. Right. And it worked out really well for them in Houston. So maybe Michael Elias is thinking the same thing. And, and you take on less risk at that point because you wait for them to be good. You wait for the pitchers right. to be good with other teams, show promise, and then you trade for them. Right. Um, and what helps you, tr- allows you to trade for them 
is drafting other position players well. Because now, you know, maybe the Orioles don't have room in a few years for a bunch of these. They have a bunch of good outfield prospects and they just can't fit them on the major league roster, but they have a need for pitching. Guess what? You can trade those outfield prospects and get a good pitcher. Right. And you can take him while he's in the middle of his prime or entering his prime and add him to a team that already has a stacked lineup. So it's not like you box yourself into a corner per se, and it's kind of the opposite of what, uh, not exactly the opposite, but similar, you know, kind of the opposite to what uh, was the previous regime's kind of model, which is grow the bats, uh, or grow the arms rather, and trade for the bats, buy the bats. So that is, you know, it's kind of the opposite of that, a little bit. It's the opposite of the Andy McPhail. But they are still growing some arms. It's not like they're totally out of out of whack here. But like you said, the three best pitchers in that Astros team came via trade, and I think that's something that Mike Michael Elias is hoping to keep himself open to by drafting good position players. And you mentioned it before as well, but it's also important to note that because the previous regime went so pitcher heavy in the draft, it allows Michael Elias to go hitter heavy now. Yes, like you have the top prospects as pitchers already in the system. So you don't need to go after pitching again and again because the previous regime got guys like Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, you can go after the top hitters. Yeah, and uh, in terms of the money, I saw comments on Facebook uh, about where that money's going to go. I mentioned the draft-eligible sophomores that you could throw a little bit more money at. Reed Trimble was one. Uh, John Rhodes was the other. Other high draft picks. And here's the thing. I don't know if the Orioles are trying to go 20 for 20, but they might be trying to go 19 or 18 for 20 in signing these guys. Yeah. So they, you know, other teams are locking up their first 10 round picks, 12 round picks. I think the Orioles are trying to lock up almost everybody that they draft. So you can spend up to $125,000 on a draft pick in rounds 11 through 20. So that's the third day of the draft. And none of that will count towards, count against your draft pool. None of it will be taken out of that. If you start going over the $125,000, then only the overage comes out of your draft pool. So basically, teams are pretty limited. If they use up all their money in their first 10 or 12 draft picks, all they can offer for these rounds 11 through 20 is $125,000 because that's all they have to, to offer if they have already used up their draft pool. For the Orioles, if they save enough money in the first 10 rounds, then they can go over $125,000 and start using some overage money from the draft pool. Does that make sense, Brendan? Is that a little too inside baseball? The MLB draft is so weird. It's a little crazy. But yeah. basically, the, the point is, I think the Orioles are trying harder than almost any other team, maybe harder than any other team, to sign every single one of the guys that they do draft. Right. So they are going for volume, uh, and they are also going, you know, they, they got some good value, but I think they also understand that the draft, as we know, a crapshoot. So you're trying to take as many swings as you possibly can here and just improve the quality of talent in the organization. Um, and if you have to take a guy who is under slot, like Colton Kowser or Connor Norby near the top of the draft, save some money there and be able to use it on your 18th, 19th round picks, that's what they're trying to do. And the money, if you don't use it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just for the draft. But... The Orioles clearly trying to use all of the money that they can and maximize that potential with their draft picks, like you said. Absolutely. Um, interesting. Interesting strategies. I think we learned a lot about Mike Elias from that. 
yes. draft and what he likes to do. And we saw some of those strategies employed in 2019 where they went hitter heavy the first couple days and then they went really in on the pitching in the last couple days. And they've hit on some of those pitchers from the 2019 draft, later round picks um, that are now making contributions in Aberdeen and Delmarva, still at the lower levels of the organization. So jury's still out on how those picks turn out. But the idea is they they take the big swings on pitching later in the draft. They trade for the pitching. I expect them to trade for maybe a pitcher or two, pitching prospect or two at the trade deadline in they always seem a week to. and a half. Yeah. They always seem to. Last year it was getting Kevin Smith for Miguel Castro, uh, getting who came back in the, the Michael Givens deal. They got, uh, actually, they got Taron Vavra and, and uh, Tyler, Tyler Nevin, Nevin in that deal. But in the offseason, yes. with the Jose Iglesias deal, yeah. They get Garrett Stallings and, as well. Yeah, Dylan Bundy deal. They get four pitchers back. Right. So they went, uh, you know, they, they've acquired a lot of promising pitchers via trade. Yes. Whew. All right. Uh, let's change topics to the, uh, the current guys who are already in the system, Brendan. Yeah, let's do it. We've seen some, uh, some guys rise up through the ranks. Now, the, the interesting thing is for the guys who have just been drafted, where they could end up. So they have the league down the Florida uh, complex league, basically down at Ed Smith stadium. Uh, from what Mike Elias has indicated, a lot of the guys who are just recently drafted will end up there. So Colton Kowser will probably start there. If you remember Adley Rutschman started in the Florida complex league, you know, under a different name before he ended up uh, making his debut in uh, Aberdeen that year, back when it was short season Aberdeen. Uh, so I think that we're going to see some guys filter there, but we've already started to see some guys go from uh, Delmarva, which is the lowest single A, all the way up to Aberdeen, which is the high A. And maybe that's clearing some room for some of these 2021 draftees to make their debuts in Delmarva soon. Yeah, according to uh, The Verge, which is an Orioles minor league baseball podcast, check it out. Uh, Hudson Haskin, Zach Peak, Robert Newstrom, and Zach Watson all go from Delmarva to high A Aberdeen. And you have to assume that while the college bats that the Orioles drafted, like you said, are going to start in this Florida league, they'll probably be in Delmarva at some point later on in the season because they are the college bats and they're a little bit more established and are on a quicker track yeah. than the high school guys would be. We'll probably see them sometime relatively soon, maybe after a month or two. Yeah, I, I would think. And it, it obviously comes down to how well they perform. But the first step is getting them signed. That's the good thing. Right. Because if you remember Adley Rutschman, uh, it took a little while for him to get signed. The deadline was later for these guys to get signed. And also he had a bout of mononucleosis, which I had in college. It sucks. It's terrible. It sounds complicated. It's just mono. I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> putting a fancy name on it. You did put a fancy it's, name it's on it. And I appreciate it. Is yeah. how, they, how they label it. Weird it flex. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so, you know, these guys have less time because the draft was later. Draft's usually in June. Draft is in July now. But they're getting signed earlier. So I think there's a good chance that we could see Colton Kowser in Delmarva in uh, August or September because the season goes later, too, for the minor leagues this year. Yeah, Colton Kowser and Connor Norby as well, some of the top college bats that the Orioles drafted. I think there's a pretty good chance we see him relatively soon. Connor Norby is an interesting player. I know we talked about him earlier, but hit 415. Yeah, with East Carolina in kind of a small field, but you know, a very good contact hitter. And I mentioned with with Colton Kowser that there were only seven prospects in the top sixty 
according to MLB Pipeline, that had a hit tool of 60. Obviously, at the time, I didn't know that Connor Norby would be an Orioles draft pick, so I just kind of went down the list, and Connor Norby was on that list. So Colton Kowser and Connor Norby, two of the seven prospects with a hit tool of 60 in the draft, both Baltimore Orioles. And almost, Colton Kowser had more walks than strikeouts. Norby had almost as many walks as he had strikeouts, so... Bringing back the uh, the old school baseball, going with contact over power, going with walks over strikeouts. Speaking of walks over strikeouts, Adley Rutschman has been struggling a little bit as of late, but is still keeping a pretty good average. Yep. And he has just surpassed his strikeout to walk numbers. He's got really? 45 strikeouts, 44 walks, which is still incredibly impressive. Yep. I'm not going to say that that's bad, but he has been in a little bit of a slump. And we've talked about Paul when is he going to get promoted to AAA Norfolk? We thought that it could be after this All-Star break, after he just recently played in the Futures game. I don't know if it's going to be soon, because yeah. he has struggled a little bit in A, struggled by Adley Rutschman standards. Though. Right. He's still hitting 269 with an OPS close to 870. He's still playing very well. He's just probably not up to the Adley Rutschman standard at this point in double A. Yeah, we thought he was on a fast track, honestly, to get called up. But over the past seven days, he's hitting uh, 136. Over the past 28 days, he's hitting 225. So his average has gone from close to 300. About a month ago, it was like 395. And now it's down to like 370. Or Sorry, 395. 295. And now it's down to like 275. So I think that's to be expected when he's shouldering the burden of catching, which he has been. He also, this is his first full year of professional baseball. But the question becomes, you know, at what point do you call him up to Norfolk? And I think that we certainly expect to see him in 2022. I think that earlier in the year, we were more bullish on him making his debut in Baltimore in 2021. Pretty much, look, it's July 19th. I think that's out of the picture for yeah. the season. But is he going to get called up to, to Norfolk soon? I think he still should. I think he'll get called, called up before the end of the year. Yes, and like I said, it's not. we're not saying that hitting 269 with an 869 OPS and 12 home runs is bad by any stretch. It's just probably not necessarily what we've come to expect with Adley Rutschman. And over the last 14 days, like you said... Those numbers have not been fantastic. Yeah, you don't you don't want to also promote him in the middle of kind of a slump, a mini slump. Right. He had a double yesterday, but like I said, he, he's in a, a mini slump. And if he continues that when he goes up to the higher level to AAA, you know, you don't want that getting in his head. And you know, then you want him building some confidence before he gets called up. I would think. Right. So I think he probably gets called up within the month. Still, I don't think it's going to be a terribly long time before he gets promoted to AAA Norfolk. Because like you said, I'm sure the plan is to try to get Adley Rutschman to the majors relatively early on in 2022. May, because June. we were assuming at the beginning of the season that he would be up at some point this year. So if he's behind that track a little bit, it would be hard to assume that he is behind that track a lot. Yeah, I, I think he probably gets promoted at some point relatively early in the 2022 season. So I think probably by the end of this year, we should be seeing him in AAA Norfolk. Well, his battery mates, D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez, unfortunately Hall has been out with an injury. They think that he's going to pitch again in 2021, but he's pretty much, you know, he's going to be in AA. I don't expect him to get come back 
make a start or two and get called up. I think they're going to try to keep him in double A. Grayson Rodriguez is younger than D.L. Hall, but Grayson Rodriguez had 12 Ks in five innings yesterday. Gas him up, Brendan. Gas him up. Got the gas can here. Yeah. Uh, could we see Grayson Rodriguez surpass D.L. Hall while D.L. Hall is injured and see Gray Rod in, in Norfolk before Hall? I think there's a possibility. I think there's a pretty strong possibility. And real quick, circling back to our yeah. draft discussion from before, this is why pitching is so risky early on in the draft. D.L. Hall is a fantastic pitching prospect. Really unfortunate that he goes down with injury, and hopefully it's not as serious as people initially thought. He had an injury in 2019, too, if you recall. But this is the risk with top pitching. I mean, there are just so many injuries that happen to these top pitchers throughout the minor leagues. But yes, on the, on the brighter note with Grayson Rodriguez, he has been unbelievable in double-A. He's gotten ERA just over two. I think it went down to under two yesterday. Is it under two? Yeah. Well, at least through his first eight games before last night's game, he had 57 strikeouts in 40 innings, which is now up to, let's see, quick math, 69 strikeouts (laughs) in 45 innings, (laughs) which is absurd. It's crazy. It's crazy. And this is, he got, remember, he got called up, what did you say, eight starts ago? Nine starts ago? Yeah. Last night was his ninth start in Bowie. Has he, is he turned 22 yet or is he still 21? I think he's still 21. Quick Google. With a sub two ERA and 69 strikeouts in 45 innings. And I don't see any reason why he shouldn't get called up to triple A. He's still 21. I, I, when you have that kind of stuff, also, like hitters in double A are not prepared for that. No. Like his finesse does not need to be top level for him to blow guys away because he is pumping 100, 101. And that's a good point as well because I think there's a pretty good chance that he will spend a good chunk of time in AAA. Because in AAA, you're getting a lot of guys that are either on the verge of the major leagues or have been bouncing in between. Yeah. So you're facing a lot of major league caliber hitters. And like you said, in AA, probably very few batters that are touching Grayson Rodriguez at 100 miles an hour. So I don't think he has to work on his secondary pitches as much as he would need to in AAA, he can just kind of overpower guys. Right. We're seeing it a little bit with Keegan Aiken at the major league level right now. He was able to pretty much breeze through the minor leagues because he had such a high spin rate fastball and his secondary stuff was really effective that he just kind of breezed through the minors and then all of a sudden he gets to the major leagues and major league hitters are just better at figuring out his stuff. So I think there's a pretty good chance that when Grayson Rodriguez is promoted to AAA, which I, I think will... We'll see sometime this season. I would think. You would have to. If he's continuing to pitch this well, like, what's the point in keeping him there? Right. But I think he probably sticks in AAA for a while. And, yeah, and even Keegan Aiken, like you said, we saw a little bit of his struggles once he hit Norfolk. He, he yes. had, a, like, a four eight five ERA, I think, his uh, full season at Norfolk in 2019. So he was starting to experience some struggles. Because that's a big jump it's from double A hitters to triple A hitters. Yes. And we're seeing it at the triple A level when it comes to other pitchers as, or other players as well, guys who have gone up to Norfolk and struggled. But the trade off is is there a certain point at which Grayson Rodriguez is not getting better as fast as he should be because he's just blowing guys away because he doesn't have to, you know? Right. He's not getting pushed. Whereas if he gets called up to Norfolk and he starts to struggle, maybe he says, all right, let me go back to the drawing board and figure out what I need to fix. For Bowie right now, he's just breezing through the competition. So you wonder, 
it, it's always the hardest thing is when to call prospects up and when to move them up. Yeah. And for right now, the I'm sure the front office is debating, is he learning enough in Bowie right now for us to keep him there? Or would he be better off learning the hard way in Norfolk? And we've seen, too, that at least early on in this season, the Orioles are not afraid to call pitchers up quickly if they are pitching really well. We saw Kyle Bradish in double-A for what? Four starts, yeah. five starts. Kevin Smith barely spent any time in Yeah, because in they were just dominating Bowie, and there was really no point in keeping him there when the hitters just weren't really challenging them. So both yeah. of those guys are in AAA and have, you know, they've still been pitching well in AAA, but obviously the level of competition is much, much higher. So yes. they are probably learning a lot more at the AAA level than they were ever learning in AA, where they could just kind of breeze through games and not really worry about it. Yeah. Grayson Rodriguez with 12 Ks in five innings tells me he's breezing through AA yes. buoy right now. So I think there's a pretty good chance that maybe sometime over the next few weeks, Grayson Rodriguez gets another promotion. I think it's if he if he has at least one or two more starts like this, you have to you have to yeah. look into moving him up. Because what's the point? Yes. <laughs> like exactly. what is the point in him pitching games in double A? Yes, exactly. Um we talked about, I mentioned briefly, Yusniel Diaz really struggling in triple in A Norfolk. He's also struggled with injuries. He's hitting under two hundred. Ryland Bannon, similar story. Uh also came over in the the same trade in the Manny Machado deal, hitting under 200 in Norfolk, struggling with injuries. Those are two guys that I think we expected to see in the big leagues in 2021, and honestly, earlier than we've than uh, this, you know, yeah. earlier than late July. I thought we could see both of them in May. It's there's a good chance neither of them now debut in 2021, which is a tough pill to swallow, but probably one that they're. Just, the Orioles are just going to have to deal with keeping those guys down there. Right, and especially when you have other guys in the system that were performing well, like Ramon Arias was hitting really well in AAA. Domingo Labo was hitting really well in AAA. Yes, they're not the top prospects, but if they're hitting well enough in the minors and hitting significantly better than Yusniel Diaz and Ryland Bannon, you can't really justify calling those prospects up over guys like Leba and Arias, yes. especially Arias, who has performed really well at the major league level so far. You just can't justify promoting guys who you believe should have been there in 2021 who are just struggling in AAA. But the one guy who's not struggling that we expected to see in the majors at some point this year, Jemai Jones. Yeah, Jemai Jones, still fantastic. I think he had at least one hit yesterday. He's hitting like 288 right now. Yep. And we talked about a few weeks ago the reason to not bring him up. Um, now we have a few more game sample size. Yes. Now we have seen him perform for a larger sample size. And the longer that we go into deeper that we go into the season, I think we could see that, you know, the higher percent chance that he gets called up. Ramon Arias, you mentioned it. He's hitting like 320 since he has been the everyday shortstop for the Orioles. Freddie Galvis is going to come back from injury at some point in August. Hopefully, Michael Franco comes back from injury at some point in the next couple of weeks. So you have you're going to have a couple that infield get a little bit more crowded. I think we could see you know that Kelvin Gutierrez is maybe even the Domingo Labas be filtered out. Ramon Arias, I think, is has pretty much made a case to at least stick on this roster as a utility man. Ramon Arias is on the team. He's not yes. going anywhere. Yeah, but Pat Valleca is hitting below the Mendoza line. That seems like a pretty good spot to uh, make a Pat Vileka for Jemai Jones swap. And at the time, a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the case not to bring up Jemai Jones, the arguments were, well, we haven't seen him do it in AAA for a long enough period of time. Yeah. And he also does not play shortstop. 
the situation has changed at this point because you don't really need a shortstop. Because of how Arias is playing. Exactly. You can throw Ramon Arias out there pretty much every game in a similar level of comp, maybe not the same level of confidence as you had in Freddie Galvis. But at this point, he's hitting well enough yeah. to be the consistent everyday starter. Keep him, keep him there until he proves he can't be there. Right. And at the time that Freddie Galvis went down, we didn't know what we would get from Ramon Arias. He had bounced back and forth between AAA and the majors. So you needed more depth at the shortstop position, which Jemai Jones did not give you. But when you have shortstop locked down and you have other guys that are versatile enough to play third base, like Kelvin Gutierrez and Domingo Leyva, while Michael Franco is still coming back from injury. At this point, you are just looking for good infielders. And Pat Vileka, at the time a few weeks ago, my argument was give him a few more weeks. He hit really well in 2020. Let's see if he can pick things up a little bit this season. He has not done that. Yeah. He has not picked up the bat, and he doesn't give you a ton defensively either. I know Jemai Jones is a little bit raw defensively at second base, but he's probably athletic enough where he is giving you more than Pat Vileka would defensively at second base. Again, we don't know how well Jemai Jones will hit at the major league level. We can be relatively confident that he is probably going to hit better than the 187 that Pat Vileka is hitting right now. Yeah. So I think we are pretty quickly approaching the time where it might be time to pull the plug on Pat Vileka. It might be close to the time where you've seen enough from somebody like Domingo Leyva or Kelvin Gutierrez. And you've also seen enough from Jemai Jones in AAA to be confident that that bat is going to translate. Yeah, it's the same thing, the same conversation that we just had about Grayson Rodriguez. At what point, you know, is he better off, you know, getting his feet wet at a higher level and maybe struggling there than he is just continuing to crush the current level that he's at? Right. Because, you know, at, at some point, it's going to reach the point where he's... It's the same thing with Mountcastle as well. You know, Mountcastle hit 312 in Norfolk, and they said, all right, well, he's not going to learn anything. <laughs> if we keep him down in Norfolk, we just ne you need to try it. Yeah, and at this point, if you're looking for something to say, okay, Jemai Jones shouldn't be at the major league level, you're probably just nitpicking Jemai Jones at this point because yeah. he's been so good. The, the that, sample like, size. You're trying to find things with him. Yeah, the sample size, I think, is still the biggest thing. For right, him. the sample size and... Before, like you said, it was the positional versatility with not being able to play shortstop, but he can still play second base, and he's probably going to give you a better second base right now than Pat Vileka is. Yeah. What do you think the final infield of the season will look like? That's a good question. I, I think first base is probably still yes. Ryan Mountcastle, Trey Mancini. Second base, I think it's probably Jemai Jones because I think we're pretty quickly approaching the point, like I said, that he is just a better option than somebody like Pat Vileka. At shortstop, I think we'll probably see Freddie Galvis back. I would be pretty surprised if he gets dealt at the deadline. He's, he's good injured. enough to, which was the unfortunate thing. If he doesn't go down with injury, I would have probably told you Ramon Arias at shortstop rather than Freddie Galvis because I think there was a chance that he got dealt. But with the injury, I don't know if a contending team is going to take that on when you haven't seen him play in two months. Yeah. So I'll probably say Freddie Galvis for shortstop. And then third base is weird. Normally, I would have said Ryland Bannon, but he's really been struggling in AAA and has been dealing with injuries. So I guess Michael Franco. I don't think Franco has played well enough to get traded, and I think he's probably got a leg up on somebody like Kelvin Gutierrez or Domingo Leyva, who I don't think we see at the major league level for a while. And I can't really think of anybody outside of Ryland Bannon that could get called up and play third at this point. I think there's a chance that the... Outfield for opening day 2022 is radically different. 
The infield, you mean? Infield, sorry. Yes. The infield for 2022, uh, with the exception of Mountcastle, Mancini at first. Could see a different, you know, maybe Jemai Jones at second base. Maybe Richie Martin at short. Maybe Richie Martin or potentially a free agent. Free at agent at short. Again. Yeah. Maybe another free agent at third if Bannon's not ready. Yeah. It's going to be a very different infield. Yeah. Going to be interesting. To it, see. The infield is interesting because you have some of the top prospects in the system. They're just far away. Yes. Like Jordan Westberg is not going to be in the majors for a while. Gunnar Henderson is going to be even further down the line than Westberg. So yes. you have the infield prospects. They're just not in this timeline. Yes, exactly. Just like uh, Loki. Different timelines. There Got you to go. branch off. Yeah. Uh, all right. That just about does it for our podcast this week. And next week, we will preview you for the trade deadline. Uh, because that is coming up on July 30th, not July 31st this year. Crazy how quickly these things yes. just come out of nowhere. They sneak up on you. Yeah. It's a busy July. Uh, yes. We'll talk about maybe some potential trade candidates on the current Orioles roster, if it makes sense to deal anybody right now. Uh, and uh, we'll have a full trade deadline preview. Of course, you can catch the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. If you don't watch it, you should be watching it on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and join in our live chat. Uh, as well on those platforms. Brendan Mortensen, at Brendan Morty on Twitter is his Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for running the show on the ones and twos today. We will be back in a week's time, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in.